Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles as we continue in our study in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 22. We're making our ways to the end of the chapter, to the end of this gospel. Luke chapter 22, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 34 today as we look at the false bravado of Peter, the false bravado. Any Wizard of Oz fans here? The book or the movie? In the Wizard of Oz, the wizard appears powerful and authoritative, but is ultimately revealed to be an ordinary man with smoke and mirrors act to appear much greater than he is. Albus Dumbledee in Harry Potter is a wise and powerful wizard, but often maintains a facade of of calm and confidence, concealing the many mistakes and regrets of his past. Did I say his name wrong? All right. How would you say his name? Dumbledore? What did I say? Dumbledee? And Dumbledum? Yeah. Sherlock Holmes, I can say that one is a brilliant detective who uses bravado and eccentric behavior to distract from his struggle and vices. Fiction character, obviously, all three of them. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines bravado as a blustering, swaggering conduct, a pretense of bravery, of being foolhardy. It's meant to impress others. It goes on to state that displays of bravado may be show-offish. Daring, reckless, and inconsistent with good sense. In our passage today in Luke 22, 31 through 34, Peter is guilty of this type of bravado as he rejects Jesus' warnings about Satan's scheme to test him and the other disciples. So look at Luke chapter 22. Look at verse 31 with me. It will be here on the monitor, but again, I always encourage you to bring your own Bible. As we hear, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might shift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both in prison and to death. In verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Father, keep us from a bravado, a false bravery. Father, as we open up this passage, it's familiar to many of us. We've seen it, we've read it, we've seen it on the screen, on TV, so on and so forth. But Father, I pray that you would make it anew to us as we open up your pages and look at Luke's eyewitness account, an orderly account of the life and ministry of Christ. And this part here is important for us. It's profitable for doctrine, for, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So work in our hearts this morning that your spirit may work. Show us, Father, where we are Peters. Father, where we are disciples of Christ. Father, in those areas in which we may fail, times in which we may reject, and times in which we may, we may exhibit a false bravado of our own. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, last week, Luke's eyewitness accounts shared an argument between the disciples about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And we remember Jesus rebuked their attitudes by stating that it was only through humility and perseverance are th- that are necessary to rule in the kingdom of God. He did encourage and recognize their dedication to his ministry and promised them that they would rule and be rewarded in the final age. But it's humility and perseverance that are kingdom ethics and values. And very quickly, after sharing that information, Jesus then begins to warn Peter of an issue that's about to come up. And Peter takes those and throw those quickly out the window. Jesus here is continuing to prepare his disciples for about to happen. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, judged, mocked, beaten, tortured, condemned, crucified, and then die. For almost three years, these men have ministered side by side with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to a multitude of miracles, both natural and supernatural. 
They observed his life in interaction with the masses, the people, and even individuals. They have listened at his feet as he taught the crowds. They were excited about his ministry. They were anticipating his triumphant ascension to the throne of David as the Messiah, the, the anointed one of God. They were already picking out their seats and gleeful in their new positions of power and anticipating that they would rule. Yet now Jesus is informing them that there will be a delay in the coming of that kingdom here on earth. And they are struggling to understand his warnings that he will be betrayed and killed. Three times he had warned them, but yet they truly don't understand what he's saying. This does not fit into their theology, nor their understanding of scripture. They must have been flabbergasted when he rebuked and corrected their misconceptions about the ethics and values of the kingdom of God. We thought we had it all figured out, but Jesus is saying, now the kingdom of God is topsy-turvy. It's totally upside down from what the world expects. And though Jesus has praised their willingness to walk with him and share in his struggles, he takes a moment now to caution them about Satan's plan to test and attempt them in the next few hours. Just as we see in Job, there are cosmic things happen beyond our imagination. So look back at me as we take this verse, verse 31, Luke chapter 22. Look back at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, here's the warning. Satan demanded to have you that he might shift you like wheat. Now, in repeating Peter's name, Jesus is affectionately calling him to pay attention. Similar to like a, child, a parent might go to a child who, who maybe is rambunctious and they, they put their hands on their shoulders or, or their hands on their face and say, you know, Lily, Lily, I, I hear you. You know, uh, Nolan, Nolan, what, what's going on? You need to pay attention. So Jesus is affectionately uh, addressing him in the same way, calling him to attention. Jesus frequently used this method when interacting with others. Remember Martha, Martha, when she was worried about everything that was going on. Or when he would say, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, in the King James, I say to you, he's getting our attention. You can imagine Jesus putting his hand on Peter's shoulder and looking straight into Peter's eyes as he informs him that Satan has demanded permission to attack Peter. Interestingly, the pronoun you in this verse is actually plural. In the English, we see you, but really in the Greek, it's y'all. It's you all. And now that's interesting in that verse is he's saying that all of you, all the disciples are going to be tempted they're going to be shifted like weak but he's given his attention here to peter in particular he indicates not only is peter the object of the devil's scheme but also the other disciples he has already compromised judas by entering into him and and giving him as an inconvenient compromise but now he sets speaking of satan he sets his eyes and his schemes on the rest of the disciples now, I want to give you just a little bit of character background on Peter. He's a familiar character to us, but just to kind of re remind us of who he is, according to the Bible Dictionary, they write that the character of Peter is one of the most vividly drawn and charming in the New Testament. His sheer humanness has made him one of the most beloved and winsome members of the Apostles. Like many of us, he was eager, he was impulsive, he was energetic, self-confident, aggressive, and daring. These are all the things that, that we would desire in a manly disciple, an apostle. But he was also unstable, fickle, weak, and as we'll see in a couple weeks, cowardly. He was guided more by quick impulse than logical reasoning, and he readily swayed from one extreme to the other. He was a preeminent man of action. His life exhibits the defects of his character as well as tremendous capacities for good as we see not only in the, New, in the Gospels, but as later as we go through the, the, the Acts of the Apostle. He was forward and often rash, liable to instability and inconsistency. He was a man many times that was guilty of bravado, looking to impress others with acts and words of courage, but not always following, following through. 
So here we see that Jesus warns them that Satan demanded, he desires to shift them like weak. Now you see here on the screen, we talked about this some time ago about shifting and weak in our, in our, in our um, summer series on Ruth, which had much to do with this. Here's a picture of a man in Africa and he's beating the wheat and he's getting, the, getting off the shaft and all the things of it. You might also think of then they would then take it and throw it up into the air and let the wind take away the, the shaft, which was lighter and the wheat, which is heavier than when fall on the ground. You and I might think of it as we're shifting wheat at, at home. If you're a baker or someone who does those types of things, you're shifting it. And when you're thinking of shifting, it's really not a gentle act. It's typically kind of a violent act, right? It's a, it's a method of violence of, of moving and shaking things through. And this is what we're getting a word picture is that Satan desires to take the disciples, particularly Peter, and he wants to beat them against a rock, so to speak. He wants to, he wants to see truly what Peter is made of. As we read earlier in the story of Job, we saw that uh, Satan loses this cosmic uh, challenge with God over Job. Job proved himself to be a godly man. He charged no one. He did not blame God or charge God with sin. And he says, but let me have Peter. Just as he demanded to have Job, he now wants Peter. He wants the disciples. He says, let me truly see. You say that these men have humility and perseverance. You say that these men will rule with you. I listened to you. I heard you in the upper room. But you know what? Let me have them for a moment. And I'll show you what these men are truly made of. It's not only Satan's desire, but he has demanded the opportunity to test and attempt them. Thomas Schreiner, a professor of the, the, uh, a theologian, says, Satan desires to shift the disciples, to destroy their faith, and to sever them from Jesus. This is his desire. This is his scheme. He wants to just cut it off right now. Now, this is a warning that all of us need to hear. We must take this as heart, as Peter will later warn his readers, looking at 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter learned this lesson the hard way. And only years later could he write this passage in his first letter. However, as we read in verse 33, jump down now, Luke 22, verse 33, Peter declares in a bravado voice here, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Test me, try me, I'm ready to go. And we will see that in a few weeks that, yes, he does take a little bit of action, but very quickly he runs away. But he says here, no, I'm, I'm ready. I'm here for the long haul. Uh, he's not showing much humility, but he is declaring that I will persevere. I will be with you. Peter is not a man who did not struggle with self-esteem and a lack of courage. He was full of it. He regularly made bold declarations, many of which are positive, as when he, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist. They said, Elijah, and so on. And then he goes to them, and he says, but who do you say I am? And we see here on the screen, Peter blurted out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the first to declare this. That which is the foundation of the church. This is what you and I stand on today is that, that confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen? So he showed courage. He showed a, a, an understanding and desire to please God. But like many of us, it faltered at times and he failed. He was prone to foot-in-the-mouth disease. Have you heard of that? Often he would open his mouth and insert his foot, meaning he would say things that would come back to haunt him later. His bravado would get him into trouble. In Peter's rebuke to Jesus about his denial, he is not referring to his commitment to personal suffering, but rather he is saying, I will die a hero's death. Now, if you've grown up as a young man reading Greek mythology and action-adventure stuff and things of that nature, all young men want to die a hero's death. All men want to say, I want to die with a hero, you know, with my boots on, so to speak. That was the old Western uh, phrase for that. Sword in the hand, ready to go. God is calling us to that. 
But yet the question is, we say that, but can we live it out? Remember the story? Um, I don't remember when it was. I think it was the Columbine incident. Uh, Brandon, you're going to may have to remind me. There was two ladies that they, they, they messed up, but it was, was it Rachel? A uh, young girl, they came up and said, uh, do you believe in God or something to that effect? And she said yes, and then she was shot. And we've always had that scenario in mind. What would I do if someone came in here and did that to me? Would I truly say yes? I was just watching a movie the other day. It's called Kingdom of Heaven. It's an old movie about the Crusades in Jerusalem. And, of course, they paint the, 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 the bishop there in Jerusalem, the cardinal. I don't know if he was a bishop or a cardinal, but he represented the pope. And this is one of the times in which the Muslims outnumbered uh, the, the, the French and English soldiers. Jerusalem was about to fall. They had to give up the city. And they recognized this. And the, the man who's in, and now this part is a fictional part. He says, well, we're going to have to surrender. And the man who's the religious leader, the head, comes up and says, now deny God, swear allegiance to Allah, God will forgive you. And the man just looked at him and said, you showed me now what you really believe about your religion, your faith. I'm paraphrasing the, the quote. And we wonder, what would we do put in this situation? And I think there's many of us that have had some bravado. Well, I would stand for God for anything. I would never deny God. Yet if we're honest, we do it each and every day to escape ridicule or mocking. We're not saying, well, you know, they said, still, you know, I'm not going to say anything about their lifestyle. Well, I'm not going to say anything about traditional marriage. I'm not going to say anything about gender or sex. I, I'm just not going to stand up today. I, I will tomorrow. You might have an urge to share with them or invite them to the harvest party, something about the church or give them a track, but yet there's something that keeps you from doing it. You're being shifted and we're failing. We are very much like that. He wants to die a hero's death. He will stand and fight for Jesus the Messiah, his king. And as we shall see in verse 50, he does grab his sword in Luke 22, verse 50, and cuts off a man's ear, but then quickly flees. Jesus responds to bravado by soberly pointing out in verse 34, Luke 22, verse 34, as we continue. Peter, I hear you. That's me saying that. It's not Jesus. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter... The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times, you will deny that you know me. Not that you follow me, not that you're one of my disciples, but that you even know me. Of course, we know that this happens before the sun rises the next day. Failure is assured for Peter. His declaration of devotion will melt away as Satan's shifting leads Peter to deny Christ. However, in this warning, let's not overlook one important word of encouragement given to Peter. Look at verse 32. We skipped it for a moment, but now we're back there. Get your pens ready. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's things there. Listen, I prayed for you, yet your faith may not fail. And when you have, you will turn back. Jesus informs Peter that he has already been praying for him and that the Father will both preserve and restore Peter in his failure. That promise is already given. Listen, Peter, it's already cosmically, it's already been sovereignly determined and, 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 and uh, ruled that you will fail. But however, I pray that the Father will not lead that to full failure, and he will restore you. John MacArthur writes that though Peter himself failed miserably in his faith, miserably, his faith, his trust, his confidence in God is not fully overthrown. Now, this short passage is full of spiritual truths that's incumbent upon us to know, to do, and to be. And let me explain that. 
As we look at scripture, it's more than just a guidebook. It's just a guidebook. It's a map book. It's much more than that. It's God's personal revelation of who he is, who we are, and what he expects from us. So when you and I read the scripture, we are reading to know. There are things that you and I want to know and understand about God's word. What is it that God expects me? What is he, what is he looking for? So there's, it, but it's more than just information transfer, you know, transfer of information. But there are things he wants us to know. But it's not enough to know. He now then wants us to take those things and do them. It's not enough to know the commands of God and the commands of Jesus. But he says, if you love me, you will what? Do those commands. So we're to know the things of God. We are to do the things of God. And then we are to be the things of God. You are my children if you love me. If you love others. If you say that you do not love your brother, then you are a liar and you're not of Christ. So there are things when you're reading scripture and you're doing it on your own or you're doing it here with us in small group, ACC, our adult core class, whatever it may be, you and I are looking to know what it is that God wants us to know. We want to do what it is that God wants us to do, what he expects of us. Be holy as I am holy. And then we're, well that, and then the be, we are to be holy. We're to pursue holiness so that we may be more holy, more like Christ. So in that, as we learned last week, humility and perseverance are called for to enter and rule in the kingdom of God. And Peter here is failing in adopting these attitudes and behaviors. It's like he hears what Jesus says and turns around and just forgets it. You and I do that, right? Somebody tells us something, we turn around and what what was it that you said again? Or we just go on and do our own thing. It's our human nature to defend ourselves against any accusation or hint of weakness, failure, unfaithfulness. So what Peter is doing here is, is normal. If someone come to say to you, I know you're going to fail in this, we would defend ourselves, right? We would say no. When people accuse us or say, hey, I think this is a failure, this is a blind spot in your life. No, we want to defend ourselves. Typically, we do not accept that type of corrective Words and criticism well. And Peter is no exception. To prepare his disciples for the upcoming events, Jesus wants them to understand the nature of suffering, temptation, and testings that they're going to face. So I want to give you several things that you and I can learn from this passage. First, we must know and understand and recognize that Satan seeks to destroy, kill, and paralyze the child of God. The Apostle Paul warns the Corinthian church that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Make no mistake, Satan desires, has designs on ruining your life. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to, he wants to tear up your family. He wants to tear up your testimony, your reputation. He warns that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light offering shortcuts to the promise of God. And so we're drawn to the light as moths are drawn to the fire. And what happens is our wings get uh, singed and burnt. And all of a sudden our flying is, is not as well and we eventually just crash and burn. His method of operation, speaking of Satan, is as old of creation itself as he was there in the beginning, tempting Eve. He tempted Eve by leading her to doubt God's word, to doubt God's character, and to doubt God's love. That is his scheme. That's how he's going to shift you today, this week, in your life. Do not be surprised that he wishes to crush your spirit and to cause you to also doubt and deny the goodness of God and his precious, his precious promises. Satan and his host of demons scheme to destroy your character and to draw you away from God. So please take Peter's words very clearly. Be sober. He knows what he's talking about. He is a roaring lion seeking to devour. He demands to have you so that he can test and see whether or not you truly are a Christian. He's looking for those Christians or those who profess Christ that are filled with nothing but bravado, a false bravery, a courage that is lacking. Or as Peter would say, they're, they're clouds with no mist, no water. They're waterless clouds. Secondly, 
we must understand that God is sovereign. Now get this. God is sovereign even in our failures. Even in our sin, those moments are ordained by God. Again, at the cost of being redundant, all things that we experience are ordained by God, even our failures. There are no coincidences. There's no accidents or mishaps. Everything that transpires in this life is from the hand of God. Testings are designed by God, as you've heard me say many times, to strengthen our character and to draw us near to him. Jesus teaches us here in James, you'll see it here in the monitor, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testings of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God himself is not so much necessarily shifting us like wheat, though that may be appropriate, but his testing is to draw us closer to him, to strengthen us. Satan's shifting is to destroy us, to sever us from Christ. Satan desires to hurt us. However, God the Father's motive is goodwill. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, that all things, for all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So Satan demands to have us, though he may harm us. God desires and demands to strengthen us. The Wayne's same event is meant by two different people for different motives and different purposes. Thirdly, God is faithful even when we are not. Even of our failures. If God ordains that you and I fail, that we fail to conform to God's law, that we fail in our living out God's commands, God is still faithful. Now, Paul, who knew a thing, about two, a thing or two about temptation, the Apostle Paul, said to the faithfulness of God, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, he will, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful. And when he says that he will deny us, it means that we truly aren't Christians. Our faith, our profession of faith was not genuine. Paul goes and encourages that we're not left alone in those times of shifting, in those times that Satan tends to harm us. In 1 Corinthians 10.1, we see that no temptation has overtaken us. And it's not common to man. But God is what? Faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So even in our failures, God is faithful to those that are truly his children. Then fourthly, we must be encouraged and strengthened that Christ prays for us. Christ prays for us. You need to understand that Jesus himself knows who you are and he prays for you. What does it mean that Jesus prays for us? Various scriptures point out that Jesus prays for us. In 1 John 1, 2, 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, anyone does fail, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the righteous. John 17, 5, in the high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask, Jesus speaking to the Father, says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is even praying for us. And his prayer not only includes endurance, but it also includes that, that God may not lead us into that temptation, that he might lead us away from Satan. In John 17, as I said, that's Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prayed for his followers, as well as for all those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. You and I stand here by opening the word of God of, the, of these apostles who read these letters. We have been brought to Christ. This is us as well. Now that Jesus ascended back into heaven, he still prays for us. His ministry on our behalf continues. Jesus is our 
advocate with the Father. An advocate pleads the case for another. It's like a lawyer. An advocate stands in place of those who cannot speak for themselves. For what can you and I say to a holy God when we fail? I'm sorry. My bad. Sorry, I got some bad habits. What do you say to a holy God? Nothing but silence should come from my mouth. But yet Jesus takes up our case and pleads before the Father. Jesus, as our advocate, stands in our place before the Father and pleads on our behalf. And Jesus' advocacy is sure to be effectual because he is the one in whom the Father said, this is my son and whom I, am, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In other words, you and I can understand this. If some stranger came up to me and says, hey, can I have 10 bucks? I might say, yeah, I'm sorry, man, I, I just can't do it. But if one of my children came to me and says, dad, can I, can I have 10 bucks? What am I more likely to do? I'm more likely to give it to him. Why? Because I love him. I'm invested in him. We have a relationship. Or if my son were to come to me and say, listen, uh, this person here, a stranger I do not know, he's in need of $10. I don't have it. Would you please give it to him? I'm even more likely as well to hear the plea of my son and to give him the $10 that that man that I do not know may have food or whatever he may need out of that. This is what we're seeing happening for us as Jesus comes before the Father. For you and I don't know how to ask many times how to pray and ask for forgiveness, ask for strength. Jesus' prayers for us are constant. And not only that, is that they are perfect because he is perfect. Have you ever started a prayer and you just don't know what to say? And so you just keep repeating the same thing. Well, Lord, uh, dear Father and uh, Jesus and Lord and Father and, uh, you know, dear God. Or you start praying in the King James I thank thee for this day, for this bounty thou hast given us today. You know, we start doing these things. Come on. But Jesus is perfect. He knows exactly how to get what he wants. He's like my grandson. He looks at me and says, Bob, can I have this? He's perfect. He knows exactly how to get from me what he wants. Now, my children, I've come a little bit more immune to that. But their children, I'm still a sucker for that. You know what I'm talking about. But Jesus is perfect. He knows, to, knows how to pray for me exactly, exactly what I need. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 4, would you with me? Hebrews 4. They're in the New Testament near the end. We have an advocate in Christ. I've said that. But you also have to remember, not only do we have an advocate on one side, but you and I have an accuser, Satan who accuses us day and night, the revelation tells us. Our mortal enemy broadcasts our sins before God, mocking and insulting the ones that Jesus has bought for his own. We see that in Job. But in Romans 8, we see that you and I do not need to worry about Satan's malice because Jesus, our advocate, is much more powerful. When he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies or makes right. Who then is to condemn one of God's children? No one, Paul says. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding and praying for my children. In John 17, continue to hold on Romans 4. In John 17, Jesus prays for his followers. And from that prayer, we can learn the kinds of things that Jesus might be praying for us now. You might say, well, how is, what is Jesus praying? Well, he gives us a list that we would know God and his son, that we would be protected from apostasy, leaving the faith, that we may be one in the spirit as the father and the son are one, that we might be filled with his joy, that we might be kept from the evil one, that we be sanctified through God's word, that we might remain unified in Christ, that, we are led, that our love will convey the, the ministry and message of Christ to the world that we would join him in heaven for all eternity, and that you and I would experience the same kind of love that he and the Father have. These are just a few of the things in John chapter 17 that Jesus prays for us. Now, Hebrews chapter 4. 
Look at verse 14. This passage describes Jesus as our high priest. And because of his intercession, his prayer for us as an advocate, we now have access to the Father. We now have access to the throne room of God. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. No longer do you and I need bravado. We can have true courage, true, true prayer. We can be like men. We can act like men from 2 Corinthians. Is you and I, or 1 Corinthians, I believe, is you and I now can have that true courage. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. He himself has been shifted by Satan himself, just as we are. However, Jesus never sinned. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. In other words, when Jesus promised uh, um, Peter that he would be restored, this is what he's saying. Not only will God restore you, he says, but you will be a great help to others in their time of need. Why? Because Jesus and the Father will be there to restore you and to strengthen you when you fail. Despite what you and I may face in life, we can live with confident assurance that if we belong to Jesus, he is always praying, interceding for us. Going back to Thomas Schreiner, we're indebted to his great work, his commentary on this Gospel of Luke. He writes that Jesus teaches Simon that his perseverance and his ministry of helping others is to be attributed not to his own virtue, but to Jesus' prayer for him and the other disciples. You see, this is what you and I need to recognize. As we talked about last week, we need humility and perseverance, not bravado, not a weak or, lack or, or, or uh, a selfish or self-motivating courage. We need humility and perseverance. But we need to recognize that our perseverance finds its source not in our willpower or something within ourselves, but in the power that Jesus prays for us. That's why I said, Simon, Simon, Satan desires, demanded to shift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. When you're being shifted like wheat, Whatever temptations and testings that you are facing in life today, be assured that Jesus is praying for you. And you're not to face it with false bravado, not this false badge of courage, but you need to face it knowing that Jesus prays for you. Who can condemn me? Who can, who can Satan accuse? Even though I fail, I will still serve God, for he will restore and lift and build me up. I'd like to come to part of the message where I just want to kind of close it and share with you what is it now that you and I take from these four spiritual truths? Knowing these things to be true, how are you and I now to live in this world in a manner that's worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ? How are we to prepare for the attacks of Satan? How are you and I to endure this constant shifting of Satan? And if you're like me, don't you feel like it's like all the time? You feel like your mind and your heart is in a blender and it's just going all the time and you're just, just stop, just stop. Our thoughts are rampant. Our attitudes are all out of adjusted, adjustment. We'll turn to 1 Peter if you would. Chapter 4, let's read what he has to write. Because this is the man who was shifted. This was the man who failed. And not only did it fail spectacularly, but God <laughs> put it in all the Gospels, so now we all read about it 2,000 years later. Talk about someone bringing up your failures and foibles. Peter can't get away from it at this point. Let's read what he has to say. First Peter chapter 4, are you near? End of the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12, what Peter writes. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. To test you as though something strange was happened to you. This is the futility of creation. 
Instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We'll speak more about it here in a couple weeks. But after Peter three times denied Christ, he might have thought that he'd never going to see Jesus again. He's dead. But yet three days later, Peter comes face to face with the one who says, I don't know you. And though we'll look at a little bit more detail, who is it that Jesus says to the women when he raises, rises from the dead? He says, go tell Peter. Go tell Peter. I don't know if I would have wanted to face Jesus at that moment. But Peter here now, years later, looks back. He says, all of you are going to be shifted to like wheat. If you're a child of God, Satan does not overlook you. His demon, the demonic horde, is looking to sever you from Christ every waking moment. Why does God allow these temptations and these testings to strengthen our character, draw us near to God, and to comfort others? I want to give you three things that you and I should do. Number one, you and I need to resist Satan at all times. Resist him. Fight him. Peter will write later in his life that you and I are to resist Satan, to be firm in our faith, our confident trust in the, in the person of God, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, do not be surprised. Everyone struggles with this, but you need to resist this, this roaring lion. James promises in his letter that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do we see that word humility? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There is a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humility and perseverance. Let me say something about resisting Satan. And let me take an illustration. I will probably mess this all up, but it just popped in my head, so this is scary. Think of it as you and I are lifting weights to those who might lift weights. There's resistance, Right? And maybe you might do some bicep curls, and, and man, you could do like 50 pounds. You might be able to do uh, three of them, right? Maybe you get to the point, but you get to do what? Then five of them, then seven, then 10. Maybe then you're adding weight, but there's resistance. But what happens is that there's going to be a time, no matter how much you can lift, that eventually what happens as you do it is that weight gets heavier and heavier, and the resistance becomes more and more and more difficult. Think about it. Go into a store. Go into Walmart. Buy something. And say, oh, I don't need a cart. I'll just carry it to the car. And then you know that each step, all of a sudden, that thing has not changed weight. But each step you go, gravity pulls more and more at you. And what started out as very little resistance has a lot. And what you and I do is eventually that resistance becomes so much that we have to drop it. We fail and we drop it. But then what do we do? We get back up. A day or two, take two days rest. You pick it up and you start again. And bit by bit, you're able to resist much more weight, much more longer. The problem is, is you and I are, I can only handle so much. Well, this is uncomfortable. This hurts. So we never grow. Whatever that resistance may be, is we give up too soon. Let me tell you, there are many times that you're going to fail. God is going to ordain that you're going to fail, but continue resisting. Because if you can resist for this long, this much weight, and then all of a sudden you have to let go and you fall into that sin, knowing that when you repent, confess that sin, and God forgives you, Jesus prays, Father, now let them resist a little bit longer. Let them resist the weight a little bit more. And this is what you and I need to do. So we need to resist Satan at all times. Number two, you and I need to rest in God's grace and mercy and restoring us. We need to recognize that we have a loving Father who wants to restore us, who wants to bring us back into the fold. Peter says, after you have suffered, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish. If you can turn to 1 Peter 5.10, you should underline that phrase. Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. After a time of suffering, this is God's promise. 
We need to rest in that. I need to resist. I need to resist. I failed. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. If we're the prodigal son that runs to the father in humility, recognizing that we cannot do it in our own self-discipline and willpower, but we can only do it in the fact that Jesus is continually praying for us. David understood this, King David. And after his sin of Bathsheba, after killing her husband, after losing his son, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then he goes and say, then, then, I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Restore me, restore me. Which leads us to the third one. So not only do we resist Satan at all times, we rest in God's grace and mercy in restoring us, but also we rally others in their failure. We rally others in their failure. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. In Psalms 51, when he says, restore me, he says, then I will teach. Why? I have gone through this so that I may help others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He recognizes that God is the good one who gives all comfort. He says, Who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. So when God comforts us, we are then to share that comfort. You are not alone. God did this through me, and he will do this for you. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Who is it that can encourage the other disciples to step up or the church or the people that Peter was writing to? Peter himself. He can look at them in the eye and says, I know what it means to live in a world that's hostile to your faith. I know what it means to deny God. I know what it means to chop off the ear of a soldier thinking that I'm going to die for Christ. Why? Because I failed. But God comforted me. And I want to share how he can comfort you. Before we are too harsh with Peter and his false bravado, let's consider what our response would be. Are you ready to die for Christ? Are you ready to endure suffering like a good soldier of Christ? Would we strongly agree with Paul's declaration? See here on the monitor where we'd say that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? As I said earlier in the message, I'm afraid that many of us fail in this in our work, in our family our communities in which we neglect we're afraid of ridicule and mockery but the gospel is the power of salvation but how many times do we say I do not know him do not know him again we're indebted to Dr. Schreiner I'd like to leave, uh, leave us with this last quote He writes, we can give the right answers to a question theologically. In other words, we know what we're supposed to say. That's what Peter said. Peter said, I know what you want to hear, so I'll say it. While still not truly knowing ourselves what we would say in any given moment under any type of circumstances. We can say we persevere to the end only by God's grace while actually deep down thinking we can tough it out by our own strength, our own grit, and our own determination. Hold just there. See, we think that it's all about us, that we can conjure up all that we need. We don't need Christ. We don't really need the Holy Spirit. I can just do it on my own. Tom Schreiner goes on to write, though, Peter falls into that category, and all of us often fell into that as well. Jesus reminds us that we need him every day, every hour, to receive our final reward, to believe until the end. Our endurance, our perseverance, our faithfulness to Jesus comes not from ourselves, he writes, but from Christ. 
Jesus intercedes for us based on his blood, which he pours out for us in death. We can also learn from this text, writing of of Luke chapter 22, 31 through 34, that one purpose, a very significant purpose, and Jesus keeping us to the end, is so that you and I may strengthen each other. This is what Christ calls us to do. He says, I am coming quickly. Encourage one another with these words. Someone who's struggling, cancer, death in the family, physical disabilities. What does God call us to do? One day this will be all over. We talked about that in our Sunday school, the, the, the future joy that you and I have when Christ returns. And I'm not sure if I have this last one up. We should all ask ourselves, Time Shriner writes, how does the Lord want, me, want to use me to serve others? Am I spending my life for that purpose, or is it served for my own? Am I caring for my brothers and sisters in the faith? That's one reason we encourage you to gather together. Because there's some of you this morning that might be shifting like wheat. Satan has demanded you, and you're in the midst of a trial or tribulation. And you're trying to do it on your own, but you can't. That's why the Bible actually says, confess your faults to one another, not so we can judge, not so we can gossip, so that we can join you in praying for you, encouraging you. You might be going through a temptation, a struggle that someone else might have and might have been restored through. And God says, I have, I've given you someone. I've, my comfort is found not only in my word and through the Holy Spirit, but through the church, through the very people that you're meeting and shaking hands with, the people you give a head nod to. Take your mask off and give comfort to each other. For that's what you and I need. Let me close with Psalms chapter 40, verse 11 through 13. The psalmist says this, For you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. I think Peter could echo this. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Would you write that down somewhere? Psalms 40, 11 through 13. Later, underline that in your Bible, highlight it, memorize it, put it on your, on your refrigerator, whatever it may be. But this is a prayer that every Christian should be praying, that God may restore us and strengthen us in our times of weakness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and Randy for our pastor's prayer. And as they do so, I want you to just take a moment to pause and consider this passage and the works of Peter here in the warnings of Christ and would you consider how Satan has demanded you in what ways is he trying to shift you like wheat have you come to understand that God is using it to test you to strengthen you while Satan is seeking to destroy you and then would you respond to the Holy Spirit's work as he's calling you in this time and you pray this as Randy comes up let's pray We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.